everyone, and welcome to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, we discuss an important but challenging topic. How should we live in the modern world? I think that most would agree that it has become increasingly difficult to find our bearings. Important things we used to count on, like religion and academic life, have significantly weakened. So where do we turn? Joining me for the interview is David Walsh, professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. He is one of the most innovative and penetrating thinkers in our country today. Over the last four decades, he's published a body of work that probes the leading thinkers and artists of recent centuries. With great confidence in our ability to find our way together, David Walsh's work offers that rare vision into the genuine good of the modern world, and it holds out to us reason for hope. I conducted the interview from Kane Academy's headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Professor Walsh joined me from his home in Chesapeake, Maryland. This is part two of a two-part interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, speaking of students, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, lend us your counsel about the kinds of uh, works of uh, literature, imaginative and expository, you think are really good foundational texts for uh, students today to help uh, recover their bearings, to, um, uh, to kind of uh, recreate some of the experiences that you've articulated so nicely from John Locke and from Zoltzenitsyn. Uh, your work is so uh, profoundly important, I think, for uh, recovering a sense of uh, the dignity and, and the worth of the person. But you also, in, in teaching us in your in your writing, you also direct us towards lots of literary works, many of the great humane letters of our tradition. But as a as a teacher, uh, I mean, I, I know you can't separate really the teaching and being a scholar, or or you, maybe I, I shouldn't have asked the question that way. But my my question really has to do with you know reading lists, selecting yeah. works to help students. Uh, experience what they ought to experience, feel what they ought to feel, kind of turn around the way they ought to turn around right here in the midst of being moderns. What do you have to say about that? Um, I'd say, you know, just start doing it. Uh, You know, that's the most important thing, that that, uh, uh, you pick up a novel, you pick up a poem, you listen uh, to a piece of music, you look at a painting, and from there you move on. Uh, I follow, the most important thing I think is for uh, students to have their interest awakened. Mm-hmm. That really is the big challenge. Um, and almost anything that grabs a student interest will, will work in that regard. Uh, you know, you, you begin, you, not everything that, that teachers select, you see, uh, is inspirational. Uh, (laughs) you know like uh, but you you begin where they are you know like uh, I think uh, one of my uh, uh, grandsons said you know we saw that movie Castaway the other day it was not very interesting (laughs) (laughs) I I said well you know there have been other movies about that other books about that about exactly that but you know that gets them into uh, just the idea that you're you're there on an island alone and how do you make how do you make sense of of the world from that perspective yeah. and 
the Tom Hanks character starts talking to a to a basketball whom he calls Wilson. You know, all these all these things. You know, it's, it's worse. Funny. It's worse. It's a volleyball. It's a volleyball. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, but, yes, yes. <laughs> but you know, yeah, uh, it's not a great movie. It's not a great story. It's not a great account. But you begin, and then hey, next thing you know, uh, we're reading Robinson Crusoe. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, thing, anything will, will work. Uh, and that's the great thing about uh, literature, uh, movies, um, and uh, uh, music and art, uh, that, you know, it speaks directly to people. I mean, my, my work is political philosophy, um, and, and that's, not, not a, that's a hard sell in most cases. <laughs> so, for instance, this semester I'm teaching modern political thought, and, and thank God we're starting off with The Prince by Machiavelli. Oh yeah, full of stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about really terrible people. But now we get into it, and you, you know, they're imaginatively there, and you know that everybody plays it out, plays things out in their minds and in their reading, and that's the great thing about about that more expansive approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've taught. Uh... I've taught some political texts at the high school level, yeah. and uh, yeah. say, the, taking the students through some dialogues by Plato and then the Nicomachean yeah. Ethics, and, and we get to Machiavelli, and they go, "Oh, well, here's finally somebody who can talk about how to get things done, you know, <laughs> get the job <laughs> completed." Um, yeah. Let, yeah. Let, I, so that's the great benefit of uh, the way in which you're approaching it there through imaginative. Uh, Examples, literature, and, and you know things you can touch and see, and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, you um, you have such a, uh, a, a really a nice touch as a writer with uh, with music and uh, visual art. Uh, I wanted to know. Uh, we won't talk about the Castaway anymore. I, <laughs> I actually, I actually kind of, I disagree a little bit on that movie. I, I think there's some really wonderful moments there. I think profoundly, are, I think yes, Hanks yeah. uh, captured yeah. a couple of yeah. profoundly humane things, and that the return to um, to his home and you know to go back and see the gal who you know he, he loves so dearly and whose yeah. whose countenance kind of helped him survive. I found that very moving, but, you know, maybe yeah. maybe I'm just a sentimental sap. <laughs> we all are for those things. That's why they work. I like that. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good turnaround. Uh, well, what about when you... <clears throat> so you, you mentioned... Uh, you have a whole chapter uh, on art in your beautiful book, uh, Politics of Person, Politics uh, of Being. Yeah. And... Um, when you present art to your readers or to your students, uh, let me ask this question. What should they teach us about ourselves? How, how do you want your students and your readers to be moved? Or, or how, with the first question, what do you want them to see, to understand, to awaken to? Um, I guess... To uh, you know, I guess the, what I tried to cover in the chapter, and, and I guess my overall approach is to think: well, uh, we have to begin to get a glimpse of what the artist was after. What he, I mean, very often we approach works of art, uh, either you know, novels, poems, uh, painting, sculpture, or anything else, uh, and think, well, 
this is going to give me um, a piece of information or it's going to give me uh, a moral story or something like that, a takeaway. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's my job is to get the takeaway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once I've done that, you know, I'm finished. I can move on. Uh, that's, I think, the biggest challenge to realize that um, there's almost no takeaway from a great work of art. You just go to it and you're absorbed by it in the way in which you're absorbed in conversation with another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't really summarize what what the whole thing was about, uh, but you know that together you're getting at something deep, something that's 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 significant, something that makes a difference in life. Uh, it's that issue, yeah. uh, and 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 especially you know very often people people think oh the artist knows what they're doing. I think you mentioned in, uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, in, 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 yeah. the, in the notes you sent me. And, you know, she's not alone in, in, as, a, as a, an artist or a writer in thinking, uh, I don't really know how this is going to end up for these characters or what they're actually going to do. Uh, you know, that was a big insight for me when I kind of realized that, yeah, that's how they, they write. That's how they produce things. It's an adventure for the artist. And, and that's why it remains an adventure for the viewer, the audience, the recipient of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of collaborate, collaborative process. And the amazing thing is that, you know, people who do this very well, they create something that endures after them. And so the conversation can keep going after they're, they're long departed from this life. Uh, and they're, they're reaching out to, to new um, viewers, readers, uh, listeners, all of that. You know, that's the most amazing thing about it. And the things get preserved and they're not lost and they're not forgotten. But somehow, you know, it's a whole other um, uh, uh, realm of reality that's opened up there. Mm-hmm. And that you can't really encapsulate in a kind of um, discursive account or a description or anything else. That's why you have to keep going back to them. Is it fair to say that um, because we're dealing with the the sensual, because of the material element involved in in art, that uh, it's more readily accessible to us as experience than, say, something that's discursive? That's one of the reasons. Um, And so, you know, we're all, um, we can all be moved by something we see or feel or touch or or hear. Uh, So there's a much more immediate uh, way way into it. Um, But it's also because the relationship of the artist to what's created is a kind of, um, you could say it's perpetually a living thing. It remains alive. Works of art remain alive in a way that... um, it's hard, much harder with other things. I mean, yes, you can go back and look at old old, old letters, old love letters or letters to your parents or, or from somebody else, and from, you know, letters in the Civil War, and you can be in touch with other lives in that way. Uh, but uh, those are not works of art. They're just sort of traces, uh, fragments that are left in which you can um, get in touch with, with other, other lives, other persons, and, and that. But the work of art kind of makes it radiant. Yeah. It serves it with a radiance that, you know, reaches out and grabs you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you, know, you one of the big uh, one of the one of the big insights that I, I, I've had over the years was um, uh, reading Hegel. 
this you know pretty obscure uh, I mean, he's not obscure he's a famous German philosopher uh, of German idealism uh, but he's pretty well impenetrable for almost everybody <laughs> I never teach him for that yeah. reason because uh, I get panned in the in the evaluations after so I couldn't understand the word he was saying yeah. note to file don't teach don't teach Hegel if you don't want to get panned <laughs> but uh, what are the things what are the what are the big insights that he had and it wasn't unique to him but he formulated it in a unique way he says there's three paths to absolute spirit to God religion or revelation philosophy mm. and art hmm. Art itself is an independent path. Uh, now, historically, we think of art as somehow serving either religion or philosophy thought. But to think of it as an independent avenue of exploration is, I think, a novel, a novel idea, and and it makes a lot of sense. And you know, when you when you see it in that way, you realize, well, of course, that's why art is so important in the modern world. So, art is one of those big achievements in the modern world. It's not that there weren't earlier artists, but that this is recognized or given space or admitted in a way that the other two are, you know, the other two have to explain themselves. Art. Uh, art is already invited in. <laughs> yeah. do you, well, do you mean by that that it's uh, it's more uh, it's become more popular? In other words, no, with, with big museums, right. it certainly has become more popular. And yeah. even though people say, "Oh well, symphony orchestras are on the decline," uh, yeah. that's not no. all. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but but uh, 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 so it's right. They're not. You know, this, it, it, there's some growth in popularity, uh, some growth in public support, and so on. Uh, but the the, um, the big thing is that um, it places no demands on you. <laughs> initially I mean yes uh, to read a book uh, you know it may take a little bit of effort or to, to go go to a gallery or to listen to music or to you know do anything of those things uh, yes you have to make an effort but it doesn't you're, you don't have to agree with anything you don't have to accept certain premises or presuppositions you just go there and see if anything happens yeah <laughs> I, at, at one point I, I think I remember you saying that uh uh, it was a very good observation that, that uh, one doesn't have to be musical in order to be moved by music. So you know yeah. you don't have to know any music theory or even be able to, to read a, a sheet of music, but yeah. you could be moved by it. I remember yeah. um, uh, I can't I can't remember whether it was the great. Uh, remember there was a chap who used to be on the radio named Carl Haas. He used yeah. to do uh, yeah. some adventures yeah. in classical music, something like that. Hello, everyone. You know, he was, he, he, he was wonderful. Him, yeah. But I, maybe it was, I think it was Haas who told the story that when uh, Goretzky's Third Symphony first made its way to the radio stations here in the United States, yeah. very few Americans yeah. had known about it. And then uh, he recounts how uh, uh, some a truck driver, maybe multiple truck drivers, happened to be listening at the same time. And there were uh, all over the country, there were. Uh, independent reports of truck drivers having to move over. They were just so overwhelmed by the, the pathos of the music. And, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, it's not only complicated 20th century music, you know, hard to hear in some respect, but it was, yeah. you know, all in Eastern uh, language. It was not uh, Eastern European language. It, you know, so yeah. double, double difficulty for, for the listeners, yeah. but very powerful nonetheless. Yeah. 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 You know, that's a, that's a, that's a good example of it. You know, you can, I mean, they're unexpected things. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, let's turn to history. So is it fair to say that in your account of history as a field of human experience, uh, it is a deeply humane field? It's a place to discover the person or rediscover the person and even something immortal about us? Sure. Um, you know, uh, we, we always think about history as... as um, uh, facts about the past uh, and dates and all of those kinds of things and uh, uh, maybe stories from the past uh, uh, but as you begin to look at history and as you begin to uh, give an account of it you realize that what you're actually doing is making the past present so history is not actually in the past. It's always in the present. Mm. Uh, but now you are connecting with people who were in the past uh, through history. So it's a way in which uh, we live outside of our own space and time, which is one of the possibilities for persons. And then you realize that, well, these people by writing, by leaving communications, by expressing themselves, are actually reaching out to us. Mm. Uh, so Plato's dialogues were not in the uh, uh, 4th century BC. Uh, they were, you could say, love letters uh, written for us. Yeah. <laughs> no. To find, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're, th they're messages in a bottle, you know, that, yeah. that are washed up on your shore. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, you're connected in a way that you say, how is that possible for me to understand somebody in, at another time, in another place, with other very different experiences? Well, that's uh, one of the amazing ways in which you could say the reality of the person becomes evident to us, that we are capable of transcending ourselves, transcending our own time and place, and therefore being in touch with every person who reaches out to us from anywhere. So when we find intelligent life on, on Mars or anywhere else, uh, we won't have any problem communicating with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Away. Yeah. You're not <laughs> From 5th century B.C. Uh, Athenians to the Martians. Here we go. Um, no, that was a beautiful way to, to, to state that. And I think you uh, articulated kind of the uh, convergence of the study of history and the study of, of literature as kind of the, the mind of the classical student or the liberal student, right? So it's not, you can't snap your fingers and go back in time and, and be something else. We can't all be medievalists again or, or ancients, but uh, we're, we're humans. And, and uh, as you say, the uh, history is now. Uh, which is evocative, of course, of T.S. Eliot's uh, beautiful poetry. Uh, history is now England, right? In this chapel, this year. So, uh, and, and there's no getting around that. Like it, it's 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 made true for us by 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 the place we are in, by uh, the people we belong to, by the literature that is our our letters, our humane letters. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so, do you think that? Uh, students do well to start by studying American history and Western history, or do, would, would you counsel a, a different approach to the study of history proper? Um, it's easier to study your own history, yes. And uh, there's, you know, it, it's a um, uh, it's an uphill battle to uh, study uh, Chinese history uh, from you know the second millennium. <laughs> yeah. 
date. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so. Uh, you know, you're much better off studying what you can, what you can have access to, and what you can see. And the great thing about American history is, is it's around you, and it's relatively short. Yeah. <laughs> so you can actually get to places, you can see things, you can see the results, and uh, you know uh, the documents are preserved. So there's much, there's much more access. But of course, uh, there's no such thing as really American history. American history is in relation to the rest of the world. Mm. America, although separated by two oceans, really uh, most Americans came across those oceans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's that's really, you know, how it's certainly related to European history, to Western yeah. history. Uh, you know, so an American connections, interests, and so on. So uh, obviously it's a convenience to say we're, we're going to have a course on American history. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But that's all it is. You have to keep all constantly in mind that we're part of a much, a much bigger family than that, and that's and, and to reach out and to see the connections, to see those connections. But certainly, you begin where you are. Uh, local history and all of that is perfectly good. Yeah, your own family history. Yeah, everything. You know. Do you? Uh uh, by logic, do you, do you keep pressing out when you say, so American history is part of the, a broader family history? Uh, do you call that Western history? Uh, do you call it uh, Anglo-European American history? Or if you keep going, um, you know, there's an inclination to use the grammar of globalism today or the language of globalism. Uh, do you think of history as global? Uh, do you think of it as sort of ecumenical or universal and somehow? Uh, I think it's universal in the sense that it, it, it touches all human beings, um, uh, the, uh, the living and the dead and the yet to be born. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, we're all connected by this river of history. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we can't master it all. We can't understand it all. We can't have access to it all. So, uh, you know, it's like a, um, a conversation. Uh, you... Um, if you want to make any, if you want to make any headway, you have to focus on somebody in this big buzzing conversation of world history, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and say, okay, let me listen to you for a yeah, while. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're the closest person to me. Uh, why don't we begin here and yeah. look at what, see what it, what history means between us and what you know what we can understand about it. I'm just saying, you know, the 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 um, uh, the big challenge I think for history uh, is that. Um, as a discipline, um, it, you know, we've benefited from just a huge advance in specialization in the historical disciplines. So we know more and more, you know, about you know, less and less and more, and you know, and more and more at the same time. Yeah. But the challenge of history is that uh, we still we're still uh, limited human beings who have to find a framework within which it all makes sense. Even if it's not the last word, even if it's not the final version or anything. So, you know, in fact, the hardest courses to teach are American history or Western civilization, uh, you know, or something like that, you know, uh, where or, or world history, even harder, you know, because there's no kind of set framework for it. Uh, and you, the, the teacher has to kind of pull it together in the way that seems most plausible, persuasive, convincing, and so on. Uh, 
the, the you, you could say professional historians have, have, I think, abandoned the challenge of historical narratives. Yeah. That's a big challenge. Yeah. Yes. And it, that's, that's partly what, 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 what you guys at Kano Academy are helping on. Uh, it's true. We, um, we find that increasingly uh, teachers just stare down the responsibility of teaching history with a, a big question mark. They, they yeah. just don't know where to get started. And part of yeah. that is the courses in history that they've taken recently in college or the, or the many yeah. of the books that they might turn to uh, are not in narrative form. And yeah. so yeah. I, is that what you mean by a lack of framework? Like there's a general lack yeah. of narrative and, yeah. and the yeah. specialization yeah. kind of fractures the study of yeah. history? Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you know, in a sense, we live in a, uh, an age of contention and disagreement, and a lot of it does revolve around historical narratives. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you just admit that, okay, it's a fact, uh, but, uh, you know, it, you don't have to have the final narrative to begin with some decent narrative. That's enough. You make a beginning. That's all that matters. Sure. Yeah, and and there there would be a parallel, right? In imaginative literature, like you, everyone would like to have at least one novel uh, in himself or herself, but it, it may it won't be the last novel ever written, or the you know the the, the king of all novels necessarily. Yeah. Uh, here's a topic that uh, you may not be asked very often, or, or or about which you might not be asked questions. Uh, every student in the humanities has to write. And for a yeah. lot of students, it's, it's drudgery. It's, it's yeah. very difficult. Um, there, there's really no sense in which you're sort of unleashed to write creatively. You know, you have to write within for a community of learners and, and certain strictures. But I wondered if there's some way for us to, to humanize writing, to make it, to kind of bring it back to uh, the David Walsh, uh, uh, the beautiful project that you're so dedicated to, to recovering our sensibilities about the person. Is there, is there something in there that you could say about uh, the role of writing and, and the teaching of writing to our students that makes it that could make it more uh, humane? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a tough question. Yeah. Uh, oh, um, I don't I don't teach writing, um, uh, but I do ask my students to write. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, and you're a writer. I mean, you write a lot. You're very prolific. And I do some writing myself, yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, I, I discover the same things um, uh, about both, about my own writing and about the writing of my students, that uh, it's difficult. Yeah. But he has to admit that uh, it's, a, it's a struggle. Yeah. And you have to get over that struggle. You know, it's like, like exercising, you know, like training. Uh, these are things that nobody really wants to do. <laughs> they much prefer to sit down, relax, and watch TV and do nothing. Uh, yeah. You know, or, or any, you know, anything else. Um, uh, but when you do it, you discover something about yourself. It's an adventure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, I tried to explain to my, my students that I'm asking you to write, write a term paper for this semester or, 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 or a series of short papers. And, you know, uh, I know you don't, feel, you don't feel heavily inclined to do that right now. Uh, and you won't like it when you have to start it. But when you're finished, you'll discover that you were better than you thought you were. Yeah. 
you know, you discover things only by writing. Yeah. And that's kind of the big thing. That's why, you know, is that people, people exercise because they discover that they actually get stronger, healthier, and, you know, enjoy life much more. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> but you, 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 nobody could convince you of that un, until you do it yourself. Yes. So that's what writing, I think, is, you know, it's a hard process that, that um, uh, you know, uh, opens up a, a dimension of yourself, your own development, and so on. You know, I, well, I loved a, a line from uh, uh, from uh, Walker Percy. Uh, he tried to explain, you know, what a writer is. I think he was asked, what, a, what is a writer then? He says, uh, a writer is a guy who gets up every morning and sits down in front of a blank page. Uh, this, you know, he was using a typewriter. And he spends an hour doing that. And then he spends another hour, and maybe another hour after that. <laughs> and then after about four hours of it, God has mercy on him and gives him a thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's off. Yeah, then he's off. <laughs> All you need is that thought, just something to get to get going. Once you, once you once you make that first step, then, then then the next one sort of flows on from that. Yeah. And that's the experience of everybody who has when they're writing, and and it's the same of all uh, all creative things. Yeah. That. Uh, the hardest thing is getting going on it. Yeah, well, uh, so that's a very, uh, I think it's a, that's a very good way to put it. So you, you've um, described writing in a way that makes it a little bit of a kissing cousin to the way you describe uh, sculpture. That is, yes. you know, Michelangelo is working, working the the marble, but the marble is disclosing, you know, yes. by the veins and the structure of the marble itself, of course. But also, there's a sense in which the the figure is is emerging, uh, yeah. and uh, so there's something like that. I, th- I think you're quite right. I think in, in writing, there we, we do discover something about ourselves, and that's uh, I think that's the surprise and the joy of it. It's also the mystery of it. Like, we, we don't know exactly where this paper is going, but um, we can have some faith that it'll, it'll go somewhere. <laughs> you have to trust, you know, everything, everything we do is we, we live up, we live by faith. The yeah. faith that, you know, yeah. that, that Walker Percy had that, that God would eventually have mercy on him. Yeah. Uh, give him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, let me ask one final question. I, I want everyone to read Politics of the Person as politi- as the Politics of Being. Uh, I, I, a fair warning, it's a very challenging book. It's a sweeping book in that, um, as I indicated in my earliest questions in today's interview, um, David, you you deal with uh, you deal with modernity, and uh, and that's a, that's a big that's a big thing for us to get our arms and minds around. We're very grateful for you to help us do that. It's a wonderful book, and um, I want everyone to read it. To, to my eye, um, there's there's there are just a few things in there, are just really exceptional and kind of. Um, life-changing for students and for teachers. I loved your uh, exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. That that was really fresh and uh, inspiring. Uh, and, it, and it took me a few reads to, to, to try to figure out what you were doing. And I'm not sure that I did entirely, but let's see if we can crack that nut open. Okay. Uh, um, and I don't expect any one example from your book to, to capture the whole thing, but to give the, the listeners in the podcast today a glimpse of what you've done, can you take us? Can you unpack uh, a little bit of what you did in unpacking the, the Sermon on the Mount? Um, as you interpret it, it seems to be both a reminder that is the sermon is both a, mi- a reminder of the limits of morality and at the same time a source of bearings for us as mortal beings. 
I hope I've, I've represented your yeah. exposition yeah. Uh, correctly there. But would you just spend a minute or two and, and touch on that classic text as you touched on it in your beautiful work? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I, I can't quite remember <laughs> how I even got to it myself. <laughs> but, but I know um, uh, what I wanted to get at was this idea that uh, being a person means always going beyond who you are or what you are, um, that, uh, and that 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 each person is always more than what they say or what they do. That idea, and. Um, it struck me um, that really the Sermon on the Mount can be read as that kind of guide to being a full person. That no matter what you think you've done, you need to do more. Um, the big uh, problem of morality is, in, and of any legal system, is that you know you say once I've met the bar, once I fulfill the requirement, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm finished. <laughs> and of course, that's not how we live. That's not how we relate to one another. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you don't say that to your wife or your child or your friend. Look, uh, I fixed your car. What more do you need? <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's not it's not a transaction in, in in any of those senses. But you know, you have to be prepared to give yourself completely. And that's the essence of being a person. That's the essence of communication between persons. And that's what Christ tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. To be perfect, to give completely in the way that God does. Mm. Be perfect because your heavenly, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Mm. That's really the, the message of it. And yes, that means... Um, Overfulfilling the quota, <laughs> going beyond the requirements, going beyond the limits, uh, and not just helping your friends and, and, and hurting your enemies, but loving your enemies, going beyond, uh, you know, uh, praying for them and helping them. And if they ask you to go one mile, you go an extra mile. You know, if, if they ask you for one cloak, you give them the, give, give them the, the shirt off your back as well. Right, you know, right. all of those things. Yeah. That, you know, that's, that is, it's, it's, you could say, that dynamic that really underpins the moral life and the life of persons. And um, I, don't, I don't know exactly how I came across, you know, uh, that realization, uh, but, uh, and partly I think it was just sort of writing it out. When you begin, to, and that's one of the ways in which writing sort of discloses dimensions that you hadn't quite anticipated. That, yes, I thought, well, I'd begin with the sermon, but, you know, as you move on, you realize, oh, there's much deep, there are much deeper implications here than I had really anticipated. Mm -hmm. And that's that's in, in, a, in a sense what the sermon is, yeah. that Christ is telling us something much more than we expected we were going to get. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you, and, yeah. And, and in that, so in that, that um, explanation just now, you, you mentioned a handful of, of persons. So there's Christ, the giver of the sermon. You, you mentioned yeah. your, one's yeah. wife. Uh, you mentioned an enemy. Uh, you mentioned yeah. that, that uh, poor person who needs a cloak, right? Um, uh, so the, the Good Samaritan uh, encounters a person, and then that man who was fallen, he was naked, he was bloody. Yeah. So, you know, in, in Jewish circles, he would have been unclean and, you know, untouchable. Yeah. But the yeah. Samaritan just let that man call forth, you know, 
the extra yeah. mile, right? The the extra yeah. effort, and uh, so all of those persons are occasions to hear, uh, as you explain it, to hear the calling of what it means to be a person, right? Yeah. Which is to, to yeah. as you say, is to give and to give more and keep giving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. What. Uh, uh, Jürgen Habermas referred to once as ethical overload. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not as beautiful as the Sermon on the Mount. But, uh, <laughs> well, there it is again, David Wall seeing in the in the modern voice uh, something that most of us wouldn't see otherwise. <laughs> that's a pretty good way, actually, to end things. I, I so enjoyed this, and I'm so appreciative of your spending some time with us and uh, sharing your your great spirit and your great insight. Uh, thank so much. All of us at Kane Academy and everybody in the podcast audience is just so grateful. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, yeah. Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. All it was right. great to talk to you. Great. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're at it, please leave us a review. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zwerneman. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Sources.